This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Hi, this is Adam Eichen, Executive Director of Equal Citizens. It's been a while since I've hosted an episode of Another Way. I've been hard at work making sure our small Equal Citizens team has as much influence over the future of our democracy as possible. But here's the deal. The fight for the For the People Act is reaching a crescendo in the Senate, and there's a ton of misinformation floating around about the bill and the prospects for getting it passed. So I'm returning to another way to bring you a small mini-series of conversations with those who are involved in the fight. The goal is to provide a sense of where things actually stand and to give you the tools to fight back against misinformation and hopelessness. Today's interview will be focused on the elephant in the room, the biggest obstacle to getting the For the People Act through Congress, the filibuster. Pundits are saying there's no chance that we can reform the filibuster. But is that true? I'm joined by Ellie Zupnik, who is perfectly positioned to answer this question for us. Ellie is the spokesman for Fix Our Senate, a coalition of organizations fighting to end the filibuster. And yes, Equal Citizens is a member of the coalition. Ellie came to fix our Senate following 10 years as a staffer in the United States Senate, including six as communications director for Senator Murray, a Democrat from Washington State. So he knows the Senate. In addition to his work in the Senate, Ellie has extensive campaign experience. He took time off from the Senate to serve as senior communications advisor for Senator Chris Murphy's 2012 successful election in Connecticut, as well as Representative Bruce Bailey's 2014 Senate race in Iowa. And he also ran communications for Senator Murray's successful re-election campaign in 2016. Prior to that, he was a press staffer on the 2008 Obama campaign in multiple states and worked on local races in New Jersey and Rhode Island. Ellie, it's great to have you here. It's great to be on. Thanks for having me. So let's start very simply. What is the filibuster and why should people care about it? Everyone throws around the term, the, you know, the filibuster. I think a lot of the, our listeners today probably know what the filibuster is, but let's just start with square one. What is the filibuster? That's a great question. So the filibuster, put simply, is the rule in the Senate that forces you to get 60 votes in order to get any legislation through the Senate, with some exceptions that we could get into. Um, but more relevantly, Perhaps it is the rule that allows 41 senators, and in today's Senate, 41 senators can represent as little as 20% of the population from stopping anything that they don't like. And that has massive implications. So you have a Senate where ultimately a bill can pass if it just has 50 votes. You only need 50 votes to pass a bill in the end, but any senator can hold up the process and force debate to continue forever until there are 60 votes to end it. And as we know, in today's polarized politics, where there's just not that much overlap anymore between parties, in fact, in the Senate and the House, there's currently no overlap. uh, That means that tiny minorities uh, can stop the majority from basically governing at all, from delivering on the promises they made to voters, from implementing the agenda that voters think that they put into power and were expecting. A minority of senators can just stop that. it's worth unpacking a little bit how that can work, because um, I know you you have an educated uh, listenership and people who follow these issues closely, um, but, it, but it's complicated. So there's the filibuster, the rule. There's a filibuster as the ability for senators to continue debate for as long as they want until there's 60 votes. And then there's the way it's actually practiced. And the way it's actually practiced is so much worse than just the letter of the rule. It's rule 22 in the Senate for those who follow these issues closely. Uh, The way it's practiced today is that senators don't have to go to the floor at all to a filibuster. It's not what you may have seen on Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, or it's not what you may have read about in your history books about Strom Thurmond or the great uh, great filibusters of the past. Uh, Not that great, but you know, the what the history books would call them. And uh, it's not that way at all. Senators today can simply email the cloakroom, email their leadership office and tell them they would like to filibuster. And that means that their leadership will hold up unanimous consent. And the Senate is a body that depends on unanimous consent to move almost anything at all. 
And that means that you then need 60 votes to pass anything. It used to be used fairly rarely. It used to be used uh, pretty much only on civil rights and voting rights bill as a tool of Southern Democrats mostly to block, um, you know, to block progress and to maintain Jim Crow. But recently, and especially since 2009, it has become a de facto supermajority requirement in the Senate, where in order for anything to be done, you need 60 votes, and the minority is always going to do everything they can to stop that. So, so just to be super clear here, right? It's that it, you know the filibuster. It really comes down to if any senator chooses to filibuster a bill, essentially the majority, the the, the group of senators that want to actually pass the bill have to get 60 votes to end debate because otherwise the the debate period the debating period will last in perpetuity and it will never end theoretically i mean essentially that that's the core of this right that the filibuster is 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 about forcing the majority to get those 60 votes and if they can't get those 60 votes then you know in in terms of kind of the the legislative process debate continues forever and then the majority has to just move on because there's no legislative way or procedural way to end, and I put this in quotes, you know, our listeners can't see this, debate. Because obviously, as you said, they're not actually debating, right? But, but, it, but from a process point of view, the debating period continues indefinitely until those 60 votes are brought together, which again, as you said, is virtually impossible. That's exactly right. And, and it's even worse than that. Those are the filibusters you see. So those are the filibusters that when the majority brings a bill to the floor, for example, when Senate Democrats recently brought a bill to the floor to establish a January 6th commission, uh, a bill that would investigate uh, with a bipartisan commission, the January 6th uh, insurrection, that the Republicans filibustered that bill. They didn't even allow it to begin debate. So there, there are multiple moments when the minority can filibuster. There is a mo- what is called a motion to proceed to begin debate on a bill in the Senate. That is a debatable motion. So that can be filibustered. Any right. debatable motion can be filibustered. So what has become the case now is something that never used to be the case is that the minority now stops the majority from even starting debate on a bill, even though if they start a debate, they can always filibuster it on the way out to end debate. But they now filibuster even getting to a debate. But that's what you that's the filibuster you see. So you see and you read about members of the minority stopping debate or stopping a bill that is brought to the floor by the majority. But the more insidious way the filibuster manifests itself, something that you don't see, are all of the bills that just never make it to the Senate floor. Because the majority brings bills to the Senate floor that can almost certainly, almost always, unless they're trying to make a political point, they will bring bills that can pass. One of the greatest resources or the most limited resources that the majority has in the Senate is the calendar and time, and things take time to pass. So the filibuster, first of all, it allows the minority to slow down even bills that have overwhelming support. So you'll see sometimes nominations that can't be filibustered. They only take 50 votes. They still take multiple days to get across the finish line. Bills that end up getting 95 votes uh, will will sometimes take a week or two weeks to get over the finish line because the filibuster slows down each step in the process. But there are also many, many bills that never see the light of the day. Um, Waxman-Markey is a great example. Passed the House in 2009, 2010, uh, was supposed to be taken up by the Senate, likely had 50 votes in the Senate. Democrats were wavering between 59 and 60 votes at the time. They never even brought it up because they knew it would be filibustered and they didn't have 60 votes. Same thing goes for gun safety legislation that has been filibustered before, but has been introduced year over year, uh, not always brought up because they knew it would be filibustered and issue after issue that just doesn't see the light of day. It gets bottled up because they know if it comes to the floor, it'll just get killed right away with a filibuster. Right. And so so really, there are two problems with the filibuster. The first is, as you said, it's become so distorted that on pieces that do have you know broad support, unless you can get those 60 votes, uh, you know, it's filibustered, uh, you know, and, and the media declares it dead. Right. We, we haven't checked in on this podcast in a while, which I, I apologize for. But now that we're back, right, that that when the For the People Act was brought uh, to the floor, it, 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 the debating period hadn't even begun. The vote that took place on the 24th of June was a motion to proceed to debate. In other words, it was a vote to begin debate on the For the People Act. And the, all 50 Democrats or those who caucus with the Democrats voted to proceed to debate. But the filibuster was on the very motion to proceed to debate, not actually to pass the bill itself. It was on the motion to proceed to debate. 
And so that's kind of point one. And then point two is this really kind of important, like critically important point is that the filibuster just takes things that are completely off of the political agenda because there's no hope at all that there's going to be 60 votes. Now, that, that that's a broken political system. That's a broken Senate. Would you agree? Absolutely. It, w- it was not meant to be this way. It is and it is not sustainable. It, it is fully broken right now. And so this, this actually wasn't one of my my questions that I wrote out. But, you know, I'm just curious, did you see this play out when you were a Senate staffer? I mean, was this just something that you wanted to hit your head against the wall? Was this, you know, was this the Senate that you thought that you you were working in? Like that, when, when you dreamed to work on the Senate? I mean, if you ever dreamed and you didn't kind of fall into that process. Uh, I mean, was this what you envisioned the Senate to be? Or or is it, is it even worse on the inside? Is, is it is it even more demoralizing, you know, to work in a place like the Senate where you know, just like everyone else knows, that it's broken? And even if a bill has 59 out of 100 senators supporting it, it still won't become law because of the filibuster. Yeah, I actually, I got into the Senate at a time when it was significantly shifting. So when I got to the Senate in 2009, there was still at the beginning an expectation that there would be bipartisan work, that not, that the filibuster would be used rarely, even though its use was increasing, uh, and that bills could get done uh, in some kind of what, what they called regular order. You bring bills to the floor, you work them through committee, you bring them to the floor, you debate them, you pass them with amendments, um, and if there's majority support, you get them over the finish line. 2009 was really when things turned. When McConnell had uh, what I think is is um, you know he, he he was ahead of the game. His great innovation that McConnell realized was that when he is in the minority and the other party controls all of government, which Democrats did at that time. They had the, the White House, of course, with President Obama. They had the House. They had a significant majority in the Senate. It wasn't quite 60 at that point until. Um, uh, until a few months later when um, Senator Franken was sworn in after a long recount, but they they had a significant majority. And McConnell understood that voters knew that Democrats were in charge. They didn't look at the Congress and say, Democrats are in charge, but they can't really get their agenda done unless they get uh, 60 votes or can get through a filibuster. They thought they elected Democrats to get things done. And McConnell realized that if he could make Democrats look bad, if he could make government dysfunctional, if he could make Congress just not work, voters weren't going to blame the minority that was causing the problem. They were going to blame the majority that they thought they were giving power. And that was really the shift in the Senate that we saw starting in 2009, but then continuing through 2013, 2014, then through the Obama years. And then, of course, in Trump uh, and now President Biden, uh, we saw in 2013, 2012, 2013, that Republicans were just as soon as they won the Senate, they weren't even letting the president confirm nominees. At that time, nominees could be filibustered. They needed 60 votes. Uh, they were McConnell wasn't letting President Obama staff his government. He wasn't letting him put judges on the bench. He wasn't letting him staff the National Labor Relations Board that was overseeing some of the labor shifts that, that voters wanted and that President Obama promised. And that was a moment when they realized that things in the ch- Senate had changed. The normal way of doing things wasn't working anymore. Um, and it wasn't so... You know, to to go back to your question, I, it was difficult to see. I came in expecting uh, that the Senate would be do, that they would be doing work that they that they would be President Obama won on a vision of changing government and and reforming healthcare and getting things done for people. And I assumed that that would be something Republicans would want to work with him on because they were just trounced pretty handily. But McConnell realized, I think, and he, again, he was ahead of his time. That's not the way politics works anymore. The minority doesn't benefit by doing bipartisan and work with the majority, except in very rare cases, maybe for local members, particular members, the minority wins back power when they can make the majority look bad. It is more like a parliamentary parliamentary system right now than it is like a you know a, a system that we had um, not too long ago when we had functionally four parties. You know, we had conservative Democrats and liberal Democrats, we had conservative Republicans and liberal Republicans, and we had cross-party alliances that were able to form and uh, different alliances could come together. That is no longer the case, and McConnell realized that. And once that happened, there was no going back. Once it became uh, that the filibuster was just the uh, the de facto requirement, everything was going to be filibustered, every bill needed 60 votes, you were not putting that toothpaste back in the tube. It's only 
only gotten worse and worse since then. Um, and, and that's why I think that one of the most important things we could do is, is get rid of that weapon that the minority can use. It doesn't mean that there's that the Senate's going to turn into the House. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be bipartisanship or compromise. In fact, there may even be more bipartisanship and compromise. And we could we can get into that if uh, if you'd like. But the thing that needs to happen now is this weapon that the minority can use to just obstruct everything needs to be taken away if we want to fix the Senate. Yeah, and, and I should just say, right, I mean, and you've alluded to it multiple times now, but the filibuster as it's used now is not, uh, you know, deeply steeped in history. I mean, and the filibuster itself is, is not a, a, a product of the, you know, the founding fathers. You know, the history of the filibuster is one of this accidentally created procedure. Um, there's a great book that recently came out called Kill Switch by Adam Gentleson that goes through this history. And so, you know, I recommend to our readers to, to read Kill Switch, and it gives you a real uh, in-depth look at how the this, you know, Rule 22, essentially, as it's known now, was was created and, and how its origins were purely accidental and how it really wasn't used throughout most of American history. And then again, you know, it, it really was kind of weaponized during the Jim Crow era and those who wanted to block progress on racial justice um, and then kind of morphed into the modern filibuster, where, as you said, it's really just a, a, a rule to require a supermajority requirement to pass anything in the Senate, and it has completely broken the Senate. It's broken the Senate as a deliberative, a deliberative body, body um, broken it as a legislative body, uh, just broken American government in, in many respects. Um, but but here's the question, right? So so most people, I think, at this point know at least listeners of this podcast probably know the filibuster. Uh, you know, probably not a great thing. What what do we know about where the, where Americans stand on the filibuster? Do do Americans uh, want to reform the filibuster? Is there is there polling on this question? Well, you know, what have you seen? And we'll get into kind of more about what the Fix Our Senate Coalition is doing, what it is. Uh, but but again, kind of from a thirty thousand foot view, where are the American people on this? Do 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 Americans want to keep the filibuster, or are the issues more what guides them? Yeah, that's a great question, and and let me let me hold for one second on on the last point because I think it's so important. Because if you listen to pundits today, if you listen to many commentators, it sometimes sounds like the filibuster was written into the Constitution or came down from Sinai on the carved into stone. That is absolutely not the case, and that is so important for people to understand that the Senate rules have changed so many times over the years. When the Senate was initially formed, it was intentionally formed to not be a super majority uh, body. They were moving away from the Articles of Confederation that weren't working, that required a supermajority, that led to dysfunction and gridlock. And the founding fathers very specifically, the framers wanted to move away from that model. So that is, it is so important to, to make that very clear and for, for people to push back anytime they hear anything about the institution of the Senate or the need to maintain the filibuster to preserve Senate norms and traditions. It's just not the case. It's changed. You know, it changed uh, over the years from the t- from the beginning when it was just a simple require- majority requirement. Then there were some accidental rule changes that you alluded to that created what was then a de facto supermajority requirement that without any ability to end debate. Then they instituted Rule 22 in 1917 to limit that and to begin a process of uh, finding a way to to get the Senate a bit more under control. It changed in the 70s again from two-thirds to three-fifths. It changed in 2013, getting rid of the filibuster on nominations. It changed in 2017, getting rid of the filibuster on Supreme Court justices. So it has changed many, many times over the years. Uh, And for good reason, because the Senate rules are meant to make the Senate work. You know, they're they're not just arbitrary rules that need to be followed for some historical reason. They are continually changing to make the Senate work. And when there are problems with the rules, there are solutions. They fix them. They don't just say we need to do better under the current rules, uh, which some senators and some pundits say now. To get to your question, I think it's a complicated question. Uh, There has been polling. I think my big takeaway from what I've seen, and I could go through some of the polling that we've seen, is that most Americans don't care about process. Most Americans aren't spending their day-to-day lives concerned about Senate rules, Senate process, procedure, nor should they be. They are focused on their jobs, their livelihoods, they're focused on their health care, they're focused on wages and uh, you know national security and the issues that they care about and they and that impact them and their families. The filibuster is uh, 
it's an obscure rule. And it is something that they, uh, you know, we know that it impacts all of these policies and impacts the things that people care about. But it's, you know, it's a second level connection. It is not a direct connection. So when we do polling on the filibuster, we, we test it in a couple of different ways. Um, but I think first and foremost, it's important for people to understand this is not on top of people's minds, nor should it be. So when we tested, um, 36% of voters said they didn't know enough to have an opinion about reforming the filibuster. Only 20% said they understood what the filibuster is uh, when uh, initially asked. But I think what we took away from our polling was that as soon as you explain to people what is happening, even in the barest sense, even in the most top line version of, of what is happening with the filibuster and, and the gridlock it's causing, people immediately swing to support reform. Um, you know, we, we asked them uh, at the end of the poll after we gave them some messaging for and some messaging against, 30% of voters said they would prefer the status quo compared to 70% who said that they would reform it. This was a national poll of, of voters. Um, and then by a 62, 38% margin, voters believe that the filibuster as it currently stands does more to create gridlock than compromise. Um, so I think, you know, I was very encouraged when I saw the polls, not because I looked at that and said, this is the issue that that Americans are scrambling to get rid uh, to address, but because when you explain to people what is happening, um, it is something that they support. And I think the, the last point I'll make on this, and, and I have some other polling numbers I could go into if you're interested, but the last point I'll make on this is that, you know, I I, I was there in 2013. I think many of your, your listeners probably were paying attention back then when Senator Reid changed the rules. This was something that DC press and, and even national press were covering in the week leading up to the rules change. And then there was absolutely no coverage after that. So I think the big takeaway is that people will focus in the short term on the rules changes, but over the long run and even the medium run, they will focus on the things that Senate is actually doing. So people weren't focused on how it got done. They were focused on whether it got done and what got done and what Senator Reid uh, realized after McConnell had had the realization initially is that people want results. And if people see that the government is working, they are happy with the majority, uh, with the party in power. If they think things are not working, they are not happy with the party in power. Um, they're not going to get them. They're not going to be too concerned with rule 22 or the Senate rules. They're interested in the things that actually impact their lives. So our job from Fix Our Senate is to make that connection a little bit clearer in the moment when we need our senators to act. So we want to make sure that people who do care about gun safety and climate change and jobs and LGBT rights and, and labor rights, uh, raising the minimum wage and so many other issues, understand that there, and of course, voting rights and democracy, that they understand that there is a connection between those issues and a brick wall that stands in the way, and that is the filibuster. And that if they want to make any progress on those issues, they have to, for now, care about the filibuster, make sure that their senators know they care about the filibuster and push for action, not but, you know, there, there's a few of us who are who going to care about making legislatures work better. I'm sure many of them listen to this podcast, but that's not the vast majority of Americans. But for right now, we want to make sure that people know that this is something they need to care about, they should care about. And, and we've had success. People do care about this now. People are learning more about it over the last couple of months. And I think most importantly, people no longer accept as an excuse when Democrats go back to them and say, I couldn't deliver on my promise because of the filibuster. More and more people, whether it's base Democrats or even independents, are saying, that is not a good excuse. We know you can change the filibuster. It is something uh, that we no longer find acceptable. You promised us this and that and that, and we are not going to accept inaction and gridlock. We're not going to let McConnell be in charge of the Senate when we thought you were in charge of the Senate. Right. I mean, th th there's just such an absurdity to the idea that there's one party in the majority, uh, but they can't do anything with that majority. Uh, it certainly doesn't seem very... Democratic. And, and we know, and we've talked about in this podcast before, that the Senate itself is an incredibly undemocratic institution that uh, gives way, you know, way more power to rural, less populated areas than to places that have more population. Um, and so the idea that there's this kind of a supermajority requirement in addition to an undemocratic Senate is is really kind of, you know, a, an existential crisis for, for our democracy. Um, okay, all that sounds great. Right. But what exactly does reform look like? What options do we have to reform the filibuster? I mean, I guess the the obvious choice is to get rid of the filibuster. But if that's not possible, what is possible? How can we fix this, you know, rule 22 um, to start passing legislation that Americans want? That's a great question. And, and as you as you allude to, I think 
or as you noted, I think the best path forward is to eliminate the filibuster, to change Rule 22 to allow cloture with a simple majority. That's not going to happen right now. That that may I think that will happen uh, in the medium term. I think Senator Reid uh, just recently said it's not a matter of if the filibuster will be eliminated. It's a matter of when. I believe Senator Reid. I think he's right. Uh, I think just um, just this morning in, uh, in a roll call article, Walter Shapiro, who's a who's a uh, follow someone who has followed the Senate and legislatures for a long time. He said something similar. He said he does not believe the filibuster will be around in 2025, but he's not exactly sure when that moment will come when it, it is eliminated. But the reality is right now we have two senators, Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema, who have made it very clear they will not in the short term eliminate the filibuster. So that, that leaves us with reform. Uh, there are um, Every Democratic senator has expressed some level of openness to reform. Even Senator Manchin, one of the most vocal defenders of the filibuster, has uh, there was leak there was audio that was least recently leaked uh, by the Intercept that had him at a fundraiser say that he was in fact open to reform, even if he was publicly saying that he didn't want to talk about reform or, or was supportive of the filibuster. He expressed openness to a talking filibuster to to reducing the threshold, and and I could get into what each of these reforms mean. Um, so, but I guess to start off, I'll say when I think about reforms, for me, the prism through which I view them is will they ultimately allow a majority to pass legislation? If the reform allows 50 votes at plus one, whether it's the vice president or another senator, if a simple majority can ultimately, after some reasonable amount of time, negotiation, compromise, debate, deliberation, the minority has opportunities to offer their amendments. That that's all good, but after some amount of time, can this bill pass with a simple majority? If the answer is yes, there's a good chance it's a decent reform. If the answer is no, then there's a good chance it could just be another tool for McConnell to delay and uh, obstruct in the Senate. So, so in other words, lowering the threshold to to end debate to 59 is not a good reform. I would not call that a good reform. I would not call uh, reducing the threshold to 55 even a good reform. Sure, it's better than where it currently sits, but what that will mean uh, in practice is that McConnell can just um, give out fewer passes to his members, uh, give out, allow fewer people, fewer Republicans to vote yes, but still make sure that a bill never actually gets 55, uh, which is something that that he can do. He has a pretty tight grip on his caucus. We see that pretty much every day now. So I think there's a couple of different kinds of reform. I think that talking filibuster is one important reform to think about. I think when when I think about a talking filibuster, I would want to make sure that it actually has provisions in there that allow it to end, simply uh, changing the rules to force a member to hold the floor who can then hand off to another member and another member wouldn't actually do anything to allow bills to pass. You need to make sure there are provisions in there that will at some point allow debate to end, either with some kind of clock or more likely with some kind of provision that just makes it physically difficult or impossible for the minority to sustain for very long. So so wait, to be clear, a talking filibuster is like the Mr. Smith goes to Washington, the idea that you, know, you can't just text you know, the cloakroom and say you're going to filibuster something. But if you want to filibuster something, you have to be on the floor and talk about something that's related to the bill indefinitely. And basically, if you want to debate indefinitely, you better debate indefinitely. There's none of this, you know, 60 votes to end this fake debate. Um, but but what you're saying here is that that's all fine. You can make people you know debate, but it can't be something that that still allows debate to last indefinitely. Um, that there still has to be some way to allow a simple majority to pass legislation. That's right. I mean, if we move to a uh, talking filibuster where one Republican can talk for two hours, hand it to another Republican to talk for two hours, they can continue that forever. I have full faith that in order to stop voting rights and maintain their grip on power, they can make sure they can string that along for days and days and days, weeks, weeks, maybe even months. So we need something more than that to make it a truly strong talking filibuster. Some of the some of the good ideas I've heard include things like putting the onus on the minority to produce 41 at any time, rather than the onus on the majority to produce 60. In other words, that if any member of the majority or any member who supports the bill can call a vote at any time to end debate, and unless there are 41 members affirmatively saying we want to continue debate and extend the filibuster, 
debate ends and you move to final passage, which is a simple up or down vote. What that means is that, sure, the minority can sustain that for some period of time. They could keep 41 members on the floor for a few days, a few weeks. But at some point, if Schumer or any member of the majority calls a vote at 3 a.m. on Saturday, unless the Republican minority wants to be there all the time, nonstop, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, at some point that filibuster will have to end as it should, because again, the minority shouldn't be able to perpetually hold up legislation. Maybe they should be able to slow it down. They shouldn't be able to stop it forever. So that, that I think is one good uh, reform. And that critically is one that Senator Manchin in that leaked audio specifically called out as one that he could support, which makes me hopeful about how this could play out. And so, so what are some of the other types of reform that you've been hearing? Sure. So you mentioned reducing the thresholds. People have talked about reduce, reducing the threshold to something like 55. That's another option uh, that Senator Manchin said he was open to in that leaked audio. Again, I don't think that that is a great option, but that's one that's out there. Um, there's you know, Senator Harkin over the years has talked about uh, reform that would start the cloture threshold at 60 and then ratchet it down after a certain number of weeks. So it would go to 60, then maybe after a week it would go to 57, then after a week it would go to 55. And then ultimately down to 50. The idea being that if there is a bill that the majority really wants to pass, they can spend a few weeks and the minority gets their opportunity to debate. But at some point, it will be able to pass with a simple majority. That, that again, you know, that, that would meet the test of being, uh, of being a good reform, but I'm not sure that that's the one that will have the most energy in the end. I think there's also some conversation or there, there is some conversation right now about a democracy carve out, what's, what some people are calling a John Lewis carve out. This is the idea that there are already so many exemptions to the filibuster, uh, budget reconciliations, one nominations are another, that it would make sense to carve out another exemption for democracy and voting related issues. Um, this is something that Stacey Abrams has talked about. It's something that um, you know, Senator Warner recently talked about and, and some others. Um, you know, again, I, I don't think this is the ideal solution because there are lots of issues that are subject to the filibuster that are also important. Um, but, it, you know, certainly voting rights is critical right now and, and the clock is ticking on getting something done. So if that's if that's the only thing that Senate Democrats could do, that would certainly be a step forward. But again, I don't think it, it would be ideal. Um, you know, then th there's some smaller reforms that people have pushed over the years, things like getting rid of the filibuster on the motion to proceed, which gets to that point that you and I talked about earlier, where the minority can stop a bill from even coming up for debate. That's not one that would ultimately solve problems, but it would at least be a step in the right direction to take away one weapon that the minority has to just prevent a bill from even coming up and even having to debate it. That's what they did to the January 6th commission. It's what they did to voting rights. They didn't even have to come to the floor to, the, to debate it. They just did not give a culture on the motion to proceed right. and it never even came up. Um, th those are the, the main reforms being discussed right now. There's there's different variations of, of all of them, but those are the main ones. Right. And, and there are a bunch of other, I think, creative ones that I've heard, like require allowing for senators representing a majority of the American population to break a filibuster to make kind of the Senate a more Democrat, a small D Democratic institution. Um, but I mean, essentially, I think that the, the standard you laid out is, is, is it should be our guiding principle, right? That anything that allows for a simple majority to pass legislation uh, is, is probably where we want to be going. And anything that doesn't meet that threshold um, you know, to, to getting us to a place where where the Senate can operate as a democratic institution is probably not real reform. And so your point is very much taken that if you reduce the clo cloture threshold to 55, it, it probably doesn't do too much to fix the Senate. Um, but speaking of fix, you know, fixing the Senate, let, let, let's talk about the the coalition that you're the spokesperson for, Fix Our Senate. What is Fix Our Senate? Who's a part of it? And, and in other words, what are you doing? Huh. That's a good question. So Fix Our Senate is a coalition of right now over 80 organizations, issue groups, advocacy groups, um, progressive um, and otherwise, that are all focused on eliminating the filibuster in some way. Um, these are groups like Indivisible, Sunrise Movement, Move On, Stand Up America, Communication Workers of America, um, you know, Issue One, many, many other groups um, that are 
in some way focused on eliminating the filibuster because the issues that they care about, they understand are being blocked by the filibuster. So groups like Brady Campaign uh, that has been so focused on universal background checks and other legislation over the years, they're a great example. They saw their their legislation has no chance of movement. They got they had a bill, the Manchin-Toomey bill, it was a bipartisan bill, got 54 votes in the Senate, 90% support among the public, but blocked by the filibuster because the NRA was able to find 46 Republicans who were, who were willing to stand up and filibuster that, despite the fact that 90% support their immigration groups, environmental groups. So we have, as a, as a coalition, been working over the past year, we've had hundreds and hundreds of conversations with different groups across the country, helping them connect the dots between the issues they care about and their members care about, and the Senate procedure that blocks any progress on them. Yeah, so so we've been, we've been working with with press and pundits to make sure that they don't buy the misinformation that McConnell and conservatives are spreading about the filibuster. They they don't they don't buy it or they question it when they are told that the Senate uh, has always operated with the filibuster. That the filibuster is critical to um, to maintaining bipartisanship and compromise. Of course, we think that's wrong and it's the exact opposite. Um, and we most recently have been conducting polling and going up in the air um, in states across the country: Arizona, West Virginia. Many many, many other states um, with uh, paid advertisements, making sure that people understand the issue and understand what is at stake and reach out to their senators. And we think it's been making a difference. We think that this is higher on the agenda than it's ever been before. We think that, as I mentioned before, Senate Democrats now understand that the filibuster can no longer be used as an excuse. And when they go back home to campaign, they know their constituents are now going to not only ask where, where, why didn't you deliver on these promises? But why didn't you get rid of the filibuster to deliver on these promises? Um, and it's something that we're seeing uh, in the polling, but we're also seeing in action as more and more Senate Democrats are coming on board with filibuster reform, making it clear, especially when it comes to something like voting rights, that they prioritize action and delivering on their promises more than some outdated, abused Senate procedure. And I think critically, one of the things that we've seen is that this has been for a long time seen as a progressive issue. And it still is, of course, because progressives are interested in getting rid of the filibuster to get so many of the issues that they care about, make some progress on them. It is also critically being seen as a moderate pragmatic issue. This is something you hear Senator Tester talk about this a lot. You hear Senator Klobuchar talk about this a lot. Moderates who for who are by no uh, by no stretch of the imagination can they be considered firebrands or progressives, uh, or, or or really you know people at the cutting edge of um, of um, the most aggressive forms of reform. They are people who are pragmatic and they see a broken institution. They see an, a Congress that has you know in some polls twenty percent support, twenty five percent support approval, uh, not getting anything done for their constituents, and there is nothing moderate or pragmatic about gridlock and dysfunction. So they are now seeing that the way to deliver results for their their constituents, the way to get things done and to make Congress work, which is something that they go home and promise their constituents they would do, is to fix the rules, to change the Senate, and to get rid of this filibuster that's just creating all that gridlock and dysfunction and making it so that they can't do anything that they promise for their constituents. So the the one person we haven't really spoken about is, is the president. Um, you know, President Biden was a senator for many, many years, operated under a Senate that did have a filibuster, although it wasn't quite the same modern filibuster that we see today. Um, President Biden has spoken very fondly about his time in the Senate and about the, the Senate as a deliberative body. And, you know, there have been questions about like, just how much he's invested in reforming the filibuster. Um where does the president stand on this? What What are your takes on that? What What should we, you know, make of his positions thus far? Do we need him to push harder? Give us some thoughts on on where the president currently stands on the filibuster and the pathway forward. Yeah. So President Biden has has had an interesting relationship with the filibuster, and and he's he's approached it in um, you know kind of a a little bit of a confusing way, I would say. So he. Uh, has been a longtime supporter of the filibuster. He has he is someone who's been in the Senate for a long time. He was in the Senate when the filibuster wasn't nearly as much of a problem as it was as it is today. Um, so he has I think he is slightly influenced or or maybe even more than slightly influenced by the Senate that existed when he was there. Um, of course, he left right as it became uh, especially bad uh, when President Biden and he as Vice President moved out of the Senate. Um, I think that 
on the campaign trail, what he said was he would be open to filibuster reform if Republicans were, quote, obstreperous. If they did, if they continued their gridlock and dysfunction and they wouldn't let anything move, he would be open to reform. He has subsequent, he subsequently uh, was a little bit more open about the fact that he could be uh on board with reforms like a talking filibuster. He said that filibusters used to be more painful, should be more painful. Um, you know, he has talked about the abuse of the filibuster and how members can just email it in or phone it in, don't even have to show up to the Senate floor. And he's expressed openness to a talking filibuster. But I think it is very clear, especially in the last few weeks, that this is not an issue he's particularly excited to talk about. Um, you know, a- as we all know, he he wants to do bipartisan work. He wants to talk about issues that can get bipartisan support. Um, He's right now very focused on getting this bipartisan infrastructure bill over the finish line. He is, um, you know, he, he, uh, he has made it very clear that that's his priority. He went to the caucus lunch. He said uh, just a couple of days ago, we learned that he was on the phone all weekend calling senators, uh, pushing them to support this bipartisan infrastructure bill. He is not yet doing that on filibuster or voting rights. And I think that he is going to have to, if we want to get this over the finish line. And I think we are very, very close. I mentioned before, we have 50 Democrats on board with voting rights legislation. We got 50 votes to to move forward, including Senator Manchin, who was not a co-sponsor of the For the People Act, but who put out his own compromise proposal and is on board with some form of voting rights. We have 48 Democrats who are very clearly open to reform, and we have two who I believe would be open to reform, Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, if the president was truly invested and pushing for this to get done. I think we need to see from the president on this, what we are seeing from him on infrastructure, a real investment, a real understanding that it's critical. Uh, I think there was a lot of disappointment from the civil rights and voting rights community when they heard him talk about non-legislative solutions, quote unquote, to voter suppression and gerrymandering. When he talked about things like out organizing voter suppression, or when he talked about simply pushing people to go out and vote uh, in the face of uh, attacks on our democracy. That was insulting to a lot of people who worked hard to organize, to vote, who have been facing um, systematic uh, oppression and suppression of their vote for many, many years, and who are now being told, we, after putting Democrats in office on a promise to help restore our democracy, who are now being told, you need to go out and do it again and work harder. Right. President Biden, I think, you know, he was a little bit too rosy in his speech about what happened in 2020. He said, you can't stop the American people from voting. We know that you can stop. Uh, ab- absolutely, you can stop people from voting. And and I mean, I just want to flag a little bit that the, the absurdity of the claim that you can out-organize gerrymandering, it's just not true, right? Like, it's, it's objectively not true. You can't break a gerrymander. And that's that's you know with with the rise of the kind of the you know the the, the you know the big data that they use to construct these impenetrable maps these that that you know that they use to partisan gerrymander states like Wisconsin and you know um, Pennsylvania and other places. I mean, the the only maps that were broken were were by the courts in 2018, um, and and that wasn't breaking the gerrymander. That was just a you know a handful of court rulings that um, that forced some of these places to redraw maps. But the ones that were remained weren't broken by any stretch of the imagination. So this idea that you can out you know mobilize voter suppression and and gerrymandering is 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 really as you said offensive. Um, so so but then how how do what do we do? Like why? Like, you know, if, if the president is kind of a little bit wishy-washy, although, you know, point taken, right, that like he has said that he, he would support a talking filibuster. It's not that he's an opponent here. It's just it's, it's a question of of is he fighting hard enough for this? Um, and, and you know, really, is he, is he fighting hard enough to to save our democracy? So so then what what needs to be done? Are, are there folks out there, uh, you know, pushing the president and senators who who are are wavering a bit? Are there folks in Arizona pers- uh, pushing uh, Kirsten Cinema? Are there folks in West Virginia pushing Joe Manchin? And of course, I asked this question as a, as a little bit of a softball because the answer is yes. Uh, but but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about you know the work that's being done by by grassroots activists to 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 turn up the heat a bit on these politicians who uh, you know want to brush this question of rules reform under the rug. And, and the folks who are saying, you can't do that. This is a do or die moment for our democracy. It's, it's the filibuster or, or democracy. You can only have one. That's exactly right. And, and I, I've been very encouraged by what I've seen over this past week um, when it was 
after President Biden gave his very his disappointing speech, where he talked about he laid out in 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 you know grave terms, he talked about the threat to our democracy and how so much was at stake. But then did you know was so weak when talking about the solution and talked about non-legislative solutions. Then we saw him in a town hall of you know really make it very clear that he was just not comfortable with this. He was he evaded the question. Don Lemon uh, pushed him hard, uh, and he you know kind of tried to pivot away and talk about the things that he wanted to get done. He made some claims that just weren't true about how if you get rid of the filibuster, reform the filibuster, it would make the Senate not work. When you know we know that the, it's the thing that is stopping right. progress on and, issues and, like and, voting and rights. Bizarrely, he also said it would it would throw the Senate into chaos. Uh, it, it was a very weird statement uh, because you know I I don't know what chaos he's talking about or, or you know what how how a, you know a small D Democratic Senate or more Democratic Senate a uh, small D Democratic Senate is 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 chaotic. I would think it's you know democracy is good. Um, but but then he also made some some weird claims that he didn't want the the fight over the filibuster to to take up political energy because he wanted to focus on the issues concerning the American people. But as as you know, the Fix Our Senate coalition is, has done a great job making clear is if you want to focus on the issues that the American people care about, like health care or gun safety or saving our democracy. Uh, or any again, any of the issues that you have to make rules reform part of this because you're never going to pass anything in the Senate with the filibuster in place. And so that was a very bizarre, you know, claim by by the president in that town hall on CNN that you were talking about because it was it, it really was this moment where I was it felt divorced from reality to say that he didn't want the fight over the filibuster to essentially take away from his agenda when the filibuster is already taking away from his agenda right now. And has been yeah. since he took office. Right. And uh, w- what it really highlighted was a concern that many of us have had over the last few weeks that was that that I think w- we, we saw most clearly in that town hall, which is that the White House seems to be operating under the theory that if they are able to pass a big bipartisan infrastructure bill, if they're able to keep the economy juiced, create lots of jobs, get the pandemic under control, that they, even if they don't do a thing on voter suppression or gerrymandering, that they will still be able to hold the House in 22, that they can then maybe win a few more seats in the Senate, and they could take care of all this in 2023. And I think, first of all, I think that's wrong. I think most people you know, most people think that there's going to be such an impact on the House in, an, in a year that historically is already bad for incumbents, that Democrats are much more likely to lose the House than hold the House. But even if they were correct, and even if they did hold the House, that is a wild gamble to take with our democracy. That is not the kind of gamble. And it's, it's, it's unacceptable. It's, it's, an, it's an unacceptable gamble. I mean, quite frankly, you shouldn't be using gamble and kind of our democracy in the same sentence unless you're saying we shouldn't gamble with our democracy. Uh, and, and, and more more to the point, I mean, you know, in addition to that is the absurdity of the claim that you can, again, out-organize this. And, and uh, a friend of this podcast, David Daly, uh, wrote a great piece in The Globe that essentially, you know, by gerrymandering alone, because the new maps are going to come out soon for the next decade, uh, you know, the Democrats are going to likely be locked out of the House for, for the next decade based on gerrymandering alone. Um, and, and again, you know, I want to be very clear here, and I think you would agree, is that this this isn't partisan. We're not we're not talking about this because, you know, we're 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 rooting for the Democrats over anybody else. Right. But but it, 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 we're talking about this purely in, in, in democracy terms, that this is this is a this is our one moment to, to fix our democracy. This is the one moment to kind of begin to write the ship of a government that is so deeply broken. And I would think that if you were a conservative or a liberal, you would want the Senate, our democracy, our the House, the, the presidency to work better. Um, and, and obviously that's why we've been fighting for the For the People Act and, and it's why we absolutely support filibuster reform because this is about the continuation of American government uh, that actually represents the people instead of a government that is just so – so broken that it, it it breeds political apathy, cynicism, uh, a, a country or a government that just absolutely brutalizes you know ordinary Americans by not taking care of their needs. I mean, it's remarkable that in some respects that we had a government that was even able to pass uh, legislation to deal with COVID uh, because of the system is so broken that it's almost remarkable that we were able to, you know, deal any relief uh, during the past historically awful, you know, COVID crisis. 
Um, and, and, and that's not how the United States government should be working. We shouldn't be, you know, holding on with a prayer that our government can, can get us through a, 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 a you know, once in a century pandemic where 600,000 Americans have died and just hope that we can get a, you know, meet a supermajority requirement that will, you know, allow us to, to prevent deaths of our own, you know, the people living in our, in our borders. Let alone, you know, preventing deaths in other countries as well. I mean, Ali, it, it just like there's a point in this conversation where I just have, I, I get worked up because it, 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 the absurdity here is just when you peel away the kind of the beltway talk about rules reform and you know what's good politics, right? When you go thirty thousand foot view, the whole situation is absurd. This is just kind of you know almost if it wasn't so awful and 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 if there weren't so many people dying because of a broken Senate, it, it would almost be laughable at how we can look at this and think this is at all resembling a democracy or a functional government. I could not agree more. And I think what we want and, and what, what you have heard from civil rights leaders and voting rights experts and people across the country since uh, President Biden made those remarks over the last two weeks is we just want him to live up to what he said himself about the threat to our democracy. He is out there saying there is a grave threat to our democracy, that that our democracy is under attack, that these voter suppression laws are Jim Crow on steroids, he called them. Right. And he called them the greatest threat to our democracy in a generation. We want him to act commensurate with that analysis. We buy the analysis. We don't think he is doing enough uh, to actually address that. And if you think our democracy is under attack, if you think that we are seeing Jim Crow on steroids, wouldn't you think that the highest priority should be stopping that? Yes, infrastructure is important. Yes, what we, what he will do in reconciliation with um, paid sick leave and child tax credit and, and other things like that are absolutely critical for families and communities. But it is Hard to say that that is truly meaningful if our democracy is being eroded underneath us, and especially if the people who are being attacked, the people whose votes are being suppressed, are people who have been attacked for for so so many times in our history and who have been asked so many times to step up in the face of those attacks, which is essentially what President Biden asked. So we're seeing, I mean, I've been very encouraged over the last couple of weeks, Representative Clyburn, who's as, as all of your listeners know, is a, is a real ally of President Biden, uh, someone uh, without whom he may not be president um, because of his endorsement in South Carolina at a key moment. He has come out in support of some kind of filibuster reform to get voting rights done. You're hearing from uh, advocates across the spectrum, um, but especially in the Black and civil rights communities who are so focused on this and sick and tired of being asked to step up and bail the country out again and again when the system is rigged against them and against our democracy. So, you know, I, I agree it's unacceptable. It is not something that, you know, I, I think it is a place, a case of misplaced priorities for the moment, but I'm hopeful that the in part because of this blowback and because people are making their voices heard, that they're going to realize that this is not a this, this strategy is flawed. They cannot rely on just juicing the economy and delivering some results for people which are important but while allowing democracy to erode underneath them, that, that that simply cannot work. So, so one, one question that I have, you know, is, is, you know, people say, you know, okay, you support filibuster reform now if, you, if you're a Democrat, right? But then you're really going to regret it later, right? And to that, I say, you know, that that's democracy, right? That, that there's a certain level of a majority should be allowed to pass legislation. And, you know, if, if I, as Adam Eichen, don't like it, you know, then we got to fight back. And, and but that's part of living, living in a democracy. You know, what, what do you say to that? This idea that like, oh, you just, you just support filibuster reform because, you know, you're, you're, you're left of center. And, and the moment, you know, you didn't support it in, in 2017, when the Republicans had unified control, you know, what do you say to that? And then what do you say to, to like, why this is something that Republicans should care about as well? Uh, that that this isn't just a, a liberal issue because I, I I fear that like our conversation because because we're focusing so much on what Democrats should do you know it is is it, it's being ca- like we you could read this conversation as a how do we get a you know the most liberal agenda through as possible but like let let let's frame this in in terms of like again a, a bringing it back to a functional democracy and, and why the filibuster reform should cut across uh, a, a partisan division if, if it should you may disagree oh no I I absolutely agree I think that it is. It is about good government. It is about having a government that is responsive to people, that is accountable to people, where people can look at their government, know who is making the decisions that are being made. I mean, right now, people look at their legislature and they don't know who is stopping th- progress or who is 
helping things along because uh, there's just there's no accountability, there's no real vision into what can happen and what can't happen. People elect a majority, but then they don't don't understand why the majority is not delivering the results that they were promised. Um, I think it's important to note that President Trump wanted to get rid of the filibuster. He he called for the filibuster to be eliminated. Uh, he thought that that was um, you know in the best interests of his agenda. He called on McConnell to get it done. I think it's also important to note that Senator McConnell did get rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees. It's also important to note that there is no filibuster on uh, budget reconciliation that allows for tax cuts. So Republicans are already able to do a, to uh, implement a significant portion of their agenda or some of their highest priorities, which are um, judges, conservative judges, and cutting taxes uh, without any uh, threat of the filibuster. Uh, and I think it's pretty clear that Republicans, if they ever had a moment when they thought it was in their interest to get rid of the filibuster, we saw in 2017 that McConnell would have no compunctions about doing exactly that, about changing the rules. So I think that this is, it is not about Democrat or Republican, um, even though in this case, Democrats are in charge and um, would be the ones implementing their agenda. It is about making the Senate work and able to deliver results for people. It's about having your elected officials be accountable uh, to you as a voter. And it's just about a government that is more functional and can actually step up and deliver on the things that are needed in this. Um, you know, There's a lot of things that need to get done right now. And we have a government that's not responsive and not working. And that needs to change. Right. No, I, I think I completely agree with that. And you know, again, I just come back again and again to the idea that if, as Biden said, you know, this is about democracy or authoritarianism, if that's the choice, then we have no choice ourselves but to reform the filibuster to pass the For the People Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, D.C. statehood, uh, everything, you know, an infrastructure package for our, our very government of our democratic institutions. I mean, it, that's a no-brainer to me if, if, if those are the stakes, which I completely agree with him that those are indeed the stakes. So so let, let, let's kind of bring it back a little bit more kind of to an optimistic lens. I, I know it's so hard and maybe it's maybe people will tune out, tune out if I say optimism because people feel such such a, a lack of optimism right now. But let, let, let's try and get a little bit of hope, right? Why should people not lose hope right now? What What's keeping you going here? And, and do you think that if we were to talk again in a month, in two months, that we might get to a place where we reform the filibuster? I think people should be hopeful and people should be hopeful, uh, but also know that we need to keep working. I think we are so close. We are truly inches from the goal line. Like no time before that I have been watching this, following this issue and working on this issue, we are closer than ever. I mentioned before that there are 50 Democrats who understand that voting rights needs to happen, who have talked about the threat to our democracy. We have at least 48 Democrats who are on board with some form of reform. And I think we it's clear that there are at least one, if not two, who are open to some other form of reform, uh, potentially. Uh, I think that we are just inches away from getting this done. And if President Biden uh, gets invested in this and he wants to push us over the finish line and he makes it clear that this is something he considers to be important and key to our democracy and his presidency, that we can do it. But it's important that people now for the next few weeks, these are going to be critical weeks as we approach the August recess and we approach those dates that I'm sure your listeners understand very well, that beyond which they're going to be, uh, the window will be closing on the ability to actually protect voters for the 22 election, promote, uh, protect the House from being rigged for the next 10 years. If we don't get something done these next few weeks, it's going to be tougher and tougher to protect our democracy. So this is the moment for people to make their voices heard. This is the moment for people to put pressure on President Biden. If you live in West Virginia or Arizona or any of those states where members may be more reluctant to make reforms, um, make your voice heard with your senator. Tell them that you care about uh, voting rights, you care about a democracy, and that you don't think the filibuster should stand in the way of protecting our democracy. Um, but I, I feel confident, hopeful. Uh, I think there's a long way to go. If we come back in a month and have another conversation, I would not be shocked if there was reform and we were able to get some uh, some movement on this. I also, unfortunately, would not be shocked if we didn't, if this just got pushed uh, by the wayside and um, President Biden and Senate Democrats decided that they weren't going to move on this. So that's why pressure right now is so important. Making your voice heard is so important. Um, and people uh, people should should not sit by the sideline any longer if they care about this issue or our democracy. So, Ellie, how, how can people get in touch with Fix Our Senate it, it, to, to plug into, into the fight? 
Like what what can people concretely do uh, if you if you're listening right now and you know they want to get in touch with you and and join you know your your efforts? What what should people do? Sure. Uh, go to fixoursenate.org. Go to Twitter at fixoursenate. Um, you know there there are ways that you can get involved. There's resources that you could share. There's social media that you can help spread the word about um, and to make your voice heard on this. Um, but we um, but fixoursenate.org at fixoursenate. Those are the two best ways to get in touch. Well, Ellie, thank you so much for a, an excellent conversation. I think that you know I'm optimistic, or at least I I have hope, um, and that's more than I think most people feel right now. But again, I think that for you know f- you know for folks who who are are in this fight, I think we're we're we see that goal line, and you know we're so tantalizingly close. And I think you feel the same way that right now maybe we're running just on adrenaline, but. Uh, we, we see that goalpost, and and you know if we get there, the rewards are are massive. Because um, as you said, or as I guess President Biden said, it really is democracy or, or authoritarianism, and we we have a real shot. And so you know there are folks doing the good work to get this done. It's not too late uh, to fix our democracy, to get rid of the filibuster, to to save our government. Um, we have this shot, and and the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what are we going to do? To, to get it done. Um, and I think everybody has a role to play. And uh, I, I'm really excited to have had this conversation with you today just to kind of give our listeners, um, you know, a sense of, of where things are with the filibuster, you know, what, um, you know, what different reform options look like and, and, and how to plug in. So, you know, Ellie, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, thanks for all the work you're doing. And make sure to go visit uh, Fix Our Senate. Um, Ellie, thanks again. Thanks for having me on. This has been another episode of Another Way. See you next time.